Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Lin- Professor Lyndall Ryan and we will be speaking with Lyndall about the ma- massacres in Victoria. We were speaking off air today about the frontier wars and there's so much to talk about. And what Lyndall and I decided was that we would actually talk about massacres in Victoria and talk a little bit about what the frontier wars mean. And there are so many stories And so the frontier wars are really about acts of resistance. So it's not just that there were massacres. It's it's about putting that in context. And I'm hoping also to talk to Lyndall about the map, the digital map that um, she has created. And we'll talk about that. Well, not created, but done some research on. So we'll talk about that. My eyesight is quite poor, so I'm really hoping that she doesn't mind if I ask stupid questions. Um, before we proceed, I would just like to acknowledge um, all the people that died in the massacres and also to pay respect to them and also to say that to, to listeners that there may be audio images of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have died. This show has had a very long tradition of um, doing a lot of Aboriginal-led interviews on campaigns and also we have done work about building the movement to stop Aboriginal deaths in custody as well as doing work on refugees and asylum seekers and women in prison. And I've got a little bit of an ulterior motive, a hidden motive for talking about this stuff. I mean I talk about this all year but just to let you know that Radiothon is coming up and um, it's so important to, to donate to keep our work alive. So we'll be speaking with Lyndall shortly, and then after that we'll be speaking with Stephen Kilkeary, who is the Director of Individual and Group Advocacy in New South Wales for People Disability Australia. And we'll be speaking with Stephen about segregated living situations for people with disability, which is a recipe for abuse and neglect. And we'll be speaking with him about the Royal Commission and some hearings that are coming up in regards to... Um, neglect and abuse of people with disability. So before we move um, to speak with Lyndall, just to to speak a little bit about her, and I'll be having her helping me um, talk about what land she's on later on, but 
Linda was born in Aurora country in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And at the age of 10, she moved to Darug country in Sydney's southwestern outskirts. And since then, she's lived in Canberra, Brisbane, Adelaide and New South Wales Central Coast and now Newcastle. And she says that she always seemed to have lived on a hill with a northern outlook. Now, what I find really important to speak about with Lyndall is that she is best known as a historian of the Australian colonial frontier and her first book, The Aboriginal Tasmanians, 1981, broke new ground in arguing that contrary to widespread belief, the Tasmanian Aboriginal people did not die out in 1876 or at any period in history. In the aftermath of the history wars and a debate about whether settler massacres of Aboriginal people were widespread on the colonial frontier, Lindell made a careful study of the practice of massacre in other parts of the world and developed a type typology to investigate the evidence of massacre of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on the colonial frontier in Australia. And in 2014, she gained a major research grant from the Australian Research Council to repair a digital map of massacre sites of Aboriginal people across the Australian frontier, 1788 to 1930, which is when um, the, the frontier wars um, took place and on, yeah, on the massacres. So we will now go over and, and speak to, to Professor Lyndall Ryan. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. And you're back with the Doing Time show. I think I just blew my nose and I think it came out on air. I've got a bit of a sinus infection. Sorry to listeners about that. Um, (laughs) Hello, Linda. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Marisa, for having me. It's lovely to have you. Did you did you listen to the intro, Lindell? Yes, I did. Lovely. So you know all about it. So I'm wondering if you could just first of all um, talk about what land you're from. Um, at the moment, I'm living on the land of the Awabakal people uh, in Newcastle, near in Newcastle, and I'd like to take this opportunity to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging in Awabakal country. It's a very lively Aboriginal community here. Absolutely. And I believe you you also were interviewed by Bo Spearham, who um, who is a, a radio host um, as, as well and does a lot of work. He's a First Nations radio broadcaster. Yes, indeed. That's an excellent interview. I haven't had a chance to listen to it all yet. So I'm wondering if you could um, talk to us just about what what actually happened with, with with the massacres and maybe perhaps put it in context. Well, I think um, <clears throat> the first massacres uh, happened uh, within six years of the first British people arriving in Sydney. Uh, it was six years after they arrived. Um, We've got the first massacres being recorded in 1794, 1795, and we've got fairly consistent evidence of the massacres occurring right up until about 1930, possibly beyond, but we decided that we had such a, uh, a wide, a long historical period to work on that we decided to stick with the period up to 1930. And what we've found is that every time 
the British settlers tried to move out a bit further, uh, they would encounter Aboriginal resistance and that uh, they, the settlers would then organise to massacre the Aboriginal people uh, so they could occupy, take the Aboriginal land. The massacres were not the only way, of course, of killing Aboriginal people, but uh, we think that the massacres were responsible for between 40 and 50% of all Aboriginal people killed overall. So it does play a very significant role. And we've got different forms of evidence of finding the massacre. Uh, we've got, uh, particularly in northern Australia, where the massacres happened uh, in the 20th century, we have some very important Aboriginal oral evidence, particularly where they've recorded it and it's been published. And that's quite a rich archive. But when we come to Victoria, most of the massacres happened in the period, 15-year uh, period before gold was discovered in 1851. That is between about 1835 and 1850. And in that period... Um, most of the western districts of Victoria were occupied by sheep farmers and cattle farmers and Gippsland was occupied by cattle farmers and they uh, were very good at undertaking massacres to get rid of the Aboriginal people. And when you look at the massacre map, we've got more than 50 massacres across Victoria in that very limited time frame of about 15 years. So it was very swift, it was very bloody, and uh, we, we know from statistics that about in that 15-year period, the Aboriginal population of Victoria dropped by at least 80% and probably more. So it was a pretty terrible time. But Aboriginal people did defend their land and they, they died defending their land. Absolutely. And the thing is that Australians and indeed people all over the world have been robbed of Australian history because a lot of the time Aboriginal people were portrayed as... As, as inverted commas, savages, that, that, and, and in fact that were passive and didn't fight back, and that's not true. It certainly isn't. And you always find when you've got an enemy who's causing you problems, like Aboriginal people were, they were very stoutly resisting the invasion of their country. And so whenever you have an, um, uh, an, a so-called enemy you're going to give them the worst possible name. You're going to call them savages. You're going to call them gooks. You're going to call them vermin. You're going to call them anything but people. Uh, in the Vietnam War, uh, Australian soldiers tended to call the Vietnam, the Viet Cong, people who were defending their land, uh, as gooks and things like that. So you're always going to get a very negative term about the enemy. And sometimes these terms can reveal to the historian the fear that the invading settlers felt about the Aborigines. They, their way of dealing with it was to deny them humanity, which justified their killing of them. And some of the work that I've done in Victoria indicates that the settlers felt 
they had every right to do it. Um, they didn't. They felt that the government wasn't giving them any support. Uh, Aboriginal people, although they were technically British subjects uh, in the British legal system, Aboriginal people were not allowed to appear in court to defend them, to be witnesses to any of these killings that took place. So the settlers had virtually everything going for them. And we've got, you know, apart from the Mile Creek Massacre of 1838, it's one of the, which is one of the few times in Australia where the killers were brought to justice in court in Sydney, you know, that's such a rare event that we've got not a lot of information through the legal system about what is going on. We have to look for other sources to help us understand. And so many people were killed, so many Aboriginal people were killed in Victoria that there's not a lot of, um, you know, sort of consistent, uh, reliable memory of what happened. They certainly have this uh, psychic memory of the terrible violence, but it's up to the historians to go and really find the evidence of what, how and where it happened. And it's um, pretty hard work to do. I'm not the only one who's done it. There's been people before me uh, uh, 20, 30 and 40 years ago. And in the 1990s, the Koori community in Melbourne produced the first massacre map in Australia of the massacre sites that their communities had collected over the years. And it caused quite a kerfuffle at the time. So I've built on a lot of their work and putting it on a digital map, it means that anybody can see it. And if they've got any problems with it or they've got more information or anything like that, we have a contact page where people can contact me and the research team and say, hey, uh, I know about that massacre, but I think it's in the wrong place. I think it was in... Uh, in the next creek, not the one you've noticed, and we can talk about that. And if you know, the ret- if the research team feels yes, upon reflection, we've looked at everything. It probably happened in the next creek rather than the one we've got on the map. We can change it. Or if other people have got other references, people have sent me copies of diaries from their ancestors that gives us more information. So. Being a digital project, it's live, it's ongoing all the time, and we can change it according to new information as it becomes available. And today, nearly a 1,000 people have contacted us over the last few years to, you know, to clarify the information. Most people want this map to be as, um, as correct as possible, and they're very anxious that the information is there for everyone to see. So it's very much a national project. But Victoria is a good example of how and where the massacres happened. Um, And Victoria is a good example of indicating that the massacres usually happen over a very short period of time, and then the settlers move on to the next place, and it begins all over again. So over a period of time, you get a range of settlers who are quite good at killing Aboriginal people en masse. 
They know how to plan it. They know when to attack. They know the kinds of people they're looking for, all of those kinds of things. So the story does tend to repeat itself, not all the time, but Victoria is a good case study of how you investigate um, frontier massacres in Australia. So do you actually have um, examples on that map that you can, you know, just a few massacres that you can tell listeners about in Victoria? Yeah, all right. Let me, there's one quite close to Melbourne, um, out at Werribee, uh, that took place um, not long after the settlers arrived. Um, I'll just get it up on the map for you. Uh, get it up for you. And that took place not long after the first settlers arrived, and that's in July 1836. And um, this happened uh, when Aboriginal... Uh, Werribee at that stage was right on the frontier of settlement just outside Melbourne. It's now almost a Melbourne suburb, but back then it was out in what we call the boondocks. And so a settler from Tasmania, Mr Franks, and his shepherd uh, had taken up a, a, a pastoral lease and had some sheep out there. And we think that um, the shepherd might have been interfering with Aboriginal women. And so uh, the shepherd was killed in, in a payback by the Aboriginal community there. Well, when news reached Melbourne then a couple of days later, a party of 17 settlers armed with muskets um, uh, went out uh, and searched for the, the alleged murderers. And uh, we think that at least 10 Aboriginal people were shot. Now, news of that reached, uh, strange enough, it didn't reach Sydney very quickly, but it did reach Hobart because many of the settlers had come up from Tasmania. So the colonial secretary in Hobart wrote to the colonial secretary in Sydney about this and said, um, from what he had heard, these 17 people came up with the Aboriginal people uh, who were camped, about 50 of them were camped uh, around Werribee and uh, they uh, attacked the camp uh, at dawn and they killed at least 10 people. Well, the colonial secretary in Sydney then demanded that an inquiry should be held by the magistrate in Melbourne and he interviewed many of those 17 people and they all denied that anything had happened. Yes, they did go out looking for the murderers of, you know, the shepherd and so on, but that they denied that they had... They said, yes, they'd fired some shots, but it was, you know, a bit dark and they weren't quite sure where they were firing. And so the official report just indicates that nothing happened. But other people... I'm not surprised, really. You know, so it's, nothing's really changed, has it? You know, no. this sense of denial. And he, um, this this idea, um, you know, he's, one of the one of the seventeen men said, "Oh, I think I'd heard that one of the Aboriginal men was wounded, but that he paid no attention to it at the time." In other words, they all colluded, and this code of silence. Is developed, and this becomes so common when you read 
in the official sources when you've got accounts like incidents like this that get chased up by the authorities. All the attackers, you know, they go in for a code of silence. They also, we did nothing, sir, nothing to see here, but we do know that there were probably 10 Aboriginal people killed, probably more, but we know that at least 10. This is very typical. We get it all over Australia. A story hits the newspapers that a group of settlers up in Queensland was attacked an Aboriginal camp and at least 10 were killed. The magistrate holds an inquiry. He interviews all the alleged attackers. They all deny that anything happened. But in the case of this one at um, Werribee, 30 years later, one of the attackers admits that they shot at least 10 people. It's, uh, it, it's long after he can be arrested and it's long after his mates are going to get him if he speaks out. So it's breaking the code of silence that is really the key to understanding the evidence of massacre. And that's where the historian has to do a lot of hard work. (laughs) So this this person's still alive, right? Admitted. Sorry? Oh, yes. The person that admitted. How can he sleep at night? These are all young men. These are all young men. You know, you don't get old going out committing massacre. These are men usually aged between... 15 and 35, uh, and those who are 15-year-olds are often a bit freaked by what happens. You know, they, they, they might be a bit gung-ho at the time, but later on, it begins to gnaw at them. It eats into them. And often when they marry themselves and have their own children, they might get nightmares about the young Aboriginal children that they killed in these massacres, and the need to tell starts to take over. And we've got quite a few cases like this in Victoria where, uh, you know, a guy in his late 70s or 80s will talk to a journalist who might be visiting a town for another reason entirely and say, I want to show you the site where it happened and I want to tell you what happened. They need to get it off their chest. Of course. So it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. We don't get it in every case, but relying on that on that kind of evidence is really important for the historian. It is important, and in fact, wouldn't it be amazing, Lyndall, if we could have memorial sites and, and like at Mile Creek? Yes, I think we're beginning to see more of them too. I think that in some areas, in some places, Local communities do want to come together and acknowledge what happened, and a memorial is a really important way of doing it. So it would be good to see that Mile Creek, I think, is is sort of setting the example of what can be done. And we know that the memorial at Mile Creek, it took about 10 years to happen, but since the, the memorial was first opened in... 20 years ago, uh, each year uh, when the the site is acknowledged, more and more people come. Some of them come from all over Australia. They want to acknowledge what happened. And it's a deeply moving ceremony. And if anyone gets the opportunity to go in a year, it's always in the Queen's birthday weekend because the massacre happened on the 10th of June. And 
um, it, it's uh, a very important uh, moment to be there. Very moving, and I think that we could get a number of sites across Victoria that where people could acknowledge these horrendous events. And where where is it is the event taking place? Uh, sorry, where, where is the event taking place? The memorial for Mile Creek. Uh, at at Mile Creek itself, the event, it's in northern New South Wales. It's about um, 30 kilometres east of Inverell, and it's on the road to Moree. And uh, the site has been excised from the original um, property, and it has now been heritage listed, and uh, it has a, a big granite memorial that has been... Uh, to, uh, there to acknowledge by the Friends of Mile Creek. And the Friends of Mile Creek are equally Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. They want to work together. And I think the Friends of Mile Creek are setting the example of what Australians can do across the rest of the country to acknowledge Absolutely. the massacres that happened near where they live or in a nearby town or, or a place like that. So it's a, you know, it's a deeply moving service. It takes place over the course of about three or four hours. A great coming together with morning tea and lunch, and in between this very powerful ceremony. And uh, it's it's a great thing to do. It's a really important thing to do. And I think just attending it opens the eyes to us all about just how terrible this period of Australian history was for Aboriginal people. Thank you so much for coming onto the program, Linda, and I'm hoping that I can have you back um, pretty soon, actually. But in terms of the map, can you just tell listeners, listeners able to know the link so that they can have a look at that map and yeah. and help, help yeah. out if they yeah. need to? Look, if you just go on to Google and put in the word colonial massacres... That usually takes you automatically to the link and then you can click on the link and the map appears and, and so on. So it's uh, we've tried to make it as accessible as possible. Any final comments, uh, Lindor? Well, I guess the final comment I'd like to make is that uh, uh, the ceremony at Mile Creek on the Queen's birthday weekend... I think is becoming one of the most important events uh, in Australia at the moment because it's one of the few opportunities for all Australians to acknowledge this very violent past that Australia has. We've been brought up to believe that Australia was peacefully settled. We now, we now know that is certainly not the case. It was very violent Lots of Aboriginal people lost their lives. And it's, it's up to us to acknowledge that, that, uh, the importance of that so that we can understand who we are as Australians today. We must acknowledge it and we need to, to work together and, and yes. unite. Yes, I think that's very important. It's been it's a long time coming. And it's not going to happen overnight, but we have to start the process. 
Yeah, I remember when I first started doing this show, uh, uh, there were quite a few Aboriginal people that didn't want to talk about the massacres at all, and it's really, really fantastic that people are talking about it. It's very hard. It's very hard for many communities. There's no question about that. And one has to acknowledge that and and be very respectful of that. Yes. But I've also found that some communities, when they've seen the map, uh, like to talk about it amongst themselves, and then they might contact me and say, we would like to give you information about a massacre that happened to our people. So things don't happen overnight. We, You know, they happen over a period of time. And... History is like that. It takes time. So we're hoping that the map, you know, does open the eyes to all Australians about what happened. And what we've got on the map, the number of sites, really it would be lucky, you know, it's just those that we know about that I've been able to, the research team has been able to find information about. There's a lot of others that will probably never get on the map because no one will ever talk about them. So it's only an indication. The map is only indicative. It's not, it's not, we can't, you know, we can't possibly attempt to put everything that happened. But the map will give you an indication of what happened and how it happened. Absolutely. And perhaps this is going to sound really confronting what I'm about to say, but is it fair to say that in some ways, you know, we've still got the families of, and friends of Aboriginal people dying in custody. And Very, the people are yes. still dying. Is that fair Absolutely. to say? Absolutely fair to say. You know, what happens in the aftermath of massacre? What massacre does, it destroys that community. You know, if you've got a community of 20 Aboriginal people, which is how most Aboriginal communities lived back then, and you kill six people in one go, that's 30% of the community. They're not going to be able to continue as they were. They can't, they're not in a position to acknowledge country. They're vulnerable to further attack. They're vulnerable to European disease. They're not able to hunt and gather food in the way that they could before perform ceremonial or reproduce the next generation. They're destroyed. And what we're seeing today is the aftermath of these massacres and how people in the aftermath, all these things happened to them. Many were rounded up. Others, you know, were were arrested for various other things. And then you've got the whole of the living on reserves and their lives very restricted and then the stolen generation. Massacre is part of that whole process of the colonisation of Aboriginal people, and it's still going on. Exactly, and thank you for making that point, Lindor, because what I really wanted to say here is that it's not just about the past. No. It's happening now. Very much so, and I think we can see very strongly between the massacres that happened in the past and what is happening with Aboriginal people today. Professor Lindell Ryan, thank you so much for coming onto the show. It's uh, I've really um, learnt a lot, and I've really enjoyed your company. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. 3CR.
I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And you're back with the Doing Time show and I'm doing the show remotely from home today. It's approximately 4.33 and we just heard an interview previously with Professor Lyndall Ryan and she was speaking about the frontier wars and the massacres in particular, massacres in Victoria. And just before we get on to our next interview, I just wanted to say that um, she's been doing a lot of research and the digital map of massacre sites of Aboriginal people across the Australian frontier, 1788 to 1930, there will actually be um, a stage three map um, released pretty soon. So look out for that. And next up, we're speaking with Stephen Kil- Stephen Kilkiri, who is the Director of Individual and Group Advocacy in New South Wales, People with Disability Australia. And I invited... I invited, actually, um, Stephen onto the show to speak about the Royal Commission and to talk about segregated living situations for people with disability. And basically, it's a recipe for abuse and neglect. And we're going to be speaking about a recent media release that has just been produced by People with Disability Australia. And the Disability Royal Commission is holding a hearing this week on preventing and responding to abuse in disability services. And I'm hoping that Stephen can talk about not only the Royal Commission, but also speak about the case study um, involving the experiences of people with disability who live in the group home in Western Sydney operated by a non-government disability service provider, Studyfield Disability Services. And there's not really a lot of coverage on the Royal Commission, so it's quite important that we talk about um, people with disability who are rendered invisible a lot of the time. Hello, Stephen. Welcome to the program. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for that uh, very glowing uh, introduction. It's lovely to have you. Now, Stephen, I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about what's been going on with um, people with disability, and, and I believe you've been doing some advocacy around this topic, and and speak about it in, in context of the Royal Commission. Yeah. Like many um, disability advocacy organisations, for many years we've had serious concerns about people in segregated or congregate living, uh, which has different names across Australia. For example, things like boarding houses here in New South Wales. I think they're called rooming houses in Victoria. They have other names elsewhere. But generally, you know, our, our deep 
deep concern is basically that this is in serious breach of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, and in particular Article 19, which talks about people with disability being able to live independently and also being in the community. And that's a really important thing that gets lost when you basically have governments across Australia um, effectively warehousing people um, in these sort of congregate settings for all sorts of reasons. Uh, top of the tree, I'd have to say, would be the economic reason. You know, it's more expedient to have a whole lot of people living under one roof uh, from an economic point of view, although from what we'd see, it, it's, it's, it's repugnant and obnoxious that people with disabilities um, are denied the right to choose, you know, where, how and with whom they should live, and that should always be uh, in the community. So there's been quite a brutal history, hasn't there, in regards to people with disability, institutions and violence and neglect. And would you say that, you know, a lot of people would say that that's a thing of the past. Would you say that's true? No, I'd have to say, um, unfortunately, I'd say unfortunately, because, you know, obviously yeah. we want a situation where people aren't being abused. I mean, it's, uh, you take that as given. However, you know, in my experience, both here in New South Wales and in Victoria, um, also the experience of our agency and other like agencies, what we're seeing is pretty much that the same sorts of problems that have occurred, for example, in the bigger type sort of institutions um, that were once scattered across uh, Australia. Many of those, or most of those, in fact, have now closed. But what we're seeing is a phenomenon that um, it was um, Brian Burdekin, actually, who was... Uh, the Human Rights Commissioner, way, way back, I think, to stretching my memory, uh, to the early 1990s, I think he visited um, a rooming house in Footscray um, um, to basically point out, you know, how barbaric and institutional these places could be. And he used the term mini-institutions. Now, if you turn to the, the general comment uh, related to Article 19... There's a very good um, passage in that um, general comment. It's fairly accessible on the web. Anybody can look it up. And, and they talk about, you know, you don't need a big institution to institutionalise people. A group home, for example, you know, we talked, the DRC is talking about group homes this week, can be just as institutionalising as, you know, let's say Ballarat Hospital or, or Morissette Hospital here in or Stockton Centre, the sorts of places, or Basil Stafford in Queensland. All these sorts of archaic institutions that many of us sort of think, well, yeah, as you pointed out, that was the past. You know, we've sort of moved on. Things have progressed. But we see in our work, our advocates, my team, the team of my colleague uh, in Queensland, we see this sort of institutional-type structural violence played out on a daily basis but it's become somewhat more insidious and, and, and more difficult to, to sort of, you know, take stock of and, and do something about. And clearly that's something we're hoping that, you know, the Disability Board Commission can really pick up on. In fact, I do know that, you know, that they are paying sp specific attention to these sorts of settings, and it's really great uh, that they're taking a look at one, one group home uh, this week here in Sydney. So, Stephen, can you just... Tell us a little bit about. I'm like, has this information been released about the the, the violence as yet? Um, when you say the violence, you mean the violence just generally, or no, no, no. Sorry, with this particular case study. Well, um, this particular case study relates to one group home. Yeah. And and I can't speak specifically to that, but what I no. can say 
is that these sorts of problems are endemic across many group homes. And that's because, you know, when you set up an institution, and that's what these places often are, where basically, you know, there's control over what people can do. Um, it goes often to, to one service provider. There's a lack of safeguards. Um, PWDA would see this as a really critical issue. For example, here in New South Wales, as you have down there in Victoria, we have uh, a visitor scheme down there. It's, it comes under the Office of the Public Advocate. Uh, here in New South Wales, it comes under the New South Wales Ageing and Disability Commission. But in both situations, uh, I know the scheme in Victoria is a, a volunteer scheme. Here in New South Wales, it's pretty close to that. Here in New South Wales, the, the official community visitors struggle to basically um, meet uh, 55%, I think, uh, visit 55% of the places they're supposed to visit. So in other words, you've got these group homes operating as mini institutions without safeguards, without accountability. And, and an even more frustrating thing is when things do happen, in terms of reaching out who is going to help, well, that, that becomes even more problematic. I, I know in the press release that we've put out, PWDA has put out, you know, we talked about the conduct of police, and I think that's a really important point. Because I think underlying a lot of this violence against people with disability is the idea it's not really a police matter. It's not something, for example, that an ordinary citizen, if you're assaulted in the street, you'd have the expectation that the police would respond and charges would be laid, et cetera, that sort of thing. But when it comes to people with disability, it's like, oh, no, it's, it's more like... I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example... Uh, and I won't name names, but no, no, yeah. there's a very there's a very significant statutory body here in New South Wales, and they used to basically who had a key role in safeguarding, and they used to refer to basically violence against people with disability in group homes, and the response to that as being a matter of, and, and I'm quoting, service delivery improvement. That's how they frame it. It was service delivery improvement. We're talking about assaults, sometimes sexual assaults, exploitation, a lot, a huge amount of financial exploitation. That's a really big problem in group homes that I've observed here in uh, New South Wales, certainly over the last two decades. Um, and, and I think that's one of the, the critical things that the disability rights movement would like to progress, and that is that these acts of violence need to be seen as acts of violence and responded to as acts of violence. And again, we're really, you know, placing our bets on the Disability Law Commission, you know, identifying that. I can say that um, the Disability Law Commission has, you know, thankfully um, articulated the view that group homes are problematic. And to me, that's a really positive step because previously group homes were often characterised pretty much as being, well, like a home, you know. And I'm not saying there aren't good group homes out there. There are. But very often, you know, they set themselves up so that basically the way they're structured, the way they're operated, the lack of safeguards, that the residents, you know, not only do they lose, you know, choice and control, but also that they are vulnerable to violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation. Absolutely. And in fact, I have been involved in a lot of dis disability rights activism, um, in particular in the 1980s. Yep. And... You know, a lot of people with disability are terrified of being locked up in an institution or a group home, and nothing has changed today. 
I mean, it appears to me, and I'm just having a look at your media release, and I wanted to draw attention to something here. You were speaking before about how people in the street can be can go to the police. Well, basically what you're saying is that if there is violence and abuse in a group home, and I imagine there is, then um, they only do an internal investigation, don't they? And those, people, those service providers are not held accountable, correct? Yeah, well... In, in, in extreme circumstances, there, there's no choice but to involve the police. But very often, these things are indeed dealt with internally and, and the processes involved are transparent. And the role, for example, of the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission, I have to say, you know, from our experience at PWDA, you know, we're unsure exactly what they're supposed to do. But what we do know, and there are, of course, you know, the Anne-Marie Smith case in, in South yes. Australia, for example, points to... That was in the, uh, in the person's own home. But nonetheless, it points to that lack of safeguards. And, and this is something the PWDA has also pointed out and is pushing for, and that is we have multiple... You know, I think someone counted 37, I could stand corrected, but we have multiple safeguards in place which are meant to protect people with disability from violence, and yet it seems that those things do not work. And we're actually calling for a national safeguard mechanism so that we can bring an end to the sorts of violence that occurs. But, but more especially, I mean, what, what we're facing now, for example, here in New South Wales is almost a, a reinvigoration, if you like, and reinvigoration is probably not the word I'd want to choose, but reinvigoration of the boarding house sector. Now, you know, I scratch my head thinking, how can it possibly be in 2021 that we're looking forward to institutionalising people with disability. Instead of turning to the CRPD, instead of evincing the words stated in Article 19 in particular about the idea of living in the community, we're actually saying, no, 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 it's OK to warehouse people with disability in these mini-institutions, you know, and some of which will contain, uh, I've been told, up to 15 residents and I'm sure they'll look good from the outside. They'll, they'll, they'll look better than some of the older type boarding house places here in New South Wales and rooming house places there in Victoria. But nonetheless, they'll still be locking people up effectively, denying them choice of control, denying people with disability the right to actually, you know, live the life of their own choosing in the community and be subject to all sorts of these you know, structured rules and regulations around how they can conduct their lives. So this is something, obviously, you know, that, that we're meant to stand up for the CRPD. Australia signed on to that convention and it's optional protocol. So that's something we need to keep fighting for to make sure that the rights of people with disability, you know, are heard and understood. And on, and on that point of, of, of understanding, I think there's still a lot of, you know, misinformation out there about people with disability. Um, you know, we get told, for example, that, well, you know, this is the best that you can get. But, but that's actually not true. There are plenty of, of uh, examples we can draw from our own experience at PWD and elsewhere where people, you know, even with so-called severe impairment, if I can use that term, mm. are able to live quite well as they want in the community. And, and as I said before, um, you know, a lot of this just comes back to money. Um, the NDIS, I think, has been problematic in this whole scenario, and I've followed and been involved with the NDIS since its 
inception. And, and one of the, the critical concerns there is around what they call, and apologies for this, I'm not a, I'm not a closet neocon, neocon but um, they talk about a thing called the thin end of the market. And what does the thin end of the market mean in reality? Well, it means basically all those people, you know, for whom exercising their choice and control, living as those people wish in the community, might, dare I say it, God forbid, cost the government some money. And <laughs> I've seen... I, I know I know it's horrible, but... I've that seen is true. Both, yeah. It's true. It's been handballed by governments... Absolutely. You know, for, for, for the last five years or more. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, for my, one, it means... You know, that's why it suddenly becomes palatable to, as I said before, warehouse people with disability in these mini institutions. It also means, for example, that, you know, people in group homes where they can't provide the support because government shifted, you know, responsibility over to the private sector or, you know, in some cases, the NGO sector. And, and we know of, of, of um, occasions where many people with disability who can't be supported in group homes are being evicted. Now, you know, you've said you've had experience in the disability sector. The whole concept of people with disability being evicted from their group yeah. homes is, un yeah. is unconscionable. It you know, really you know, I mean, is, Stephen. Even, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to start praising um, ADAC here in New South Wales or DHS or whatever it's calling itself these days in Victoria, but that would never happen back in the day. And, and where do those people end up? Well, I can tell you one place where they end up, because we know this from um, our experience, and that is they end up blocking beds in psychiatric hospitals. Yeah. Now, what a, what a, what a pitiful situation, basically, you know, in terms of not supporting people with disability. So, in other words, we, we, we overlay this neoliberal model that the market will sort out every problem, knowing that won't work, we hand over responsibility for service delivery to companies, whether they're constituted as NGOs, they're still companies. And then the whole thing breaks down and who suffers, of course, those with the greatest support needs. To me, that's just, just morally so offensive. I, I just can't believe it. So, you know, our, our opposition to group homes is based on the fact that this is something decided by others. This is a model of practice that, that hasn't worked. It, it takes away the concept of genuine choice and control. It warehouses people with disabilities together. It, it, it basically removes, if you like, safeguards that should be in place. And so what we'd like to see is let's turn things around. You know, let's get back to the idea that people with disability can and should be able to be supported to choose where and how they live. And, and if we did that, yeah. I mean, obviously that would be upholding, upholding people's human rights, which I'd, I'd hope in a um, civilised and sophisticated country like Australia is something we'd be doing. But, but the other thing is, you know, even if you are a, whatever the word is, something, a, a market junkie, um, yeah. it actually makes economic sense because, you know, actually abusing people is not, how can I say, cost-effective. It's actually wrong on so many levels um, to be perpetuating these sorts of models. Absolutely. And also, just to draw attention to listeners here, that segregated housing systems for people with disability 
um, providers have exceptional control over residents' day-to-day activities. I mean, for example, if people are using wheelchairs, they would some of them would need to be showered, wouldn't they? And there would yeah. be, a, you know, room for sexual assault in that particular arena, wouldn't there? Yeah, and, and this, is, this is something else that concerns me. We're, we're sort of moved to an era where we're all um, uttering uh, from the textbook of the NDIS. And, and I've been in settings where the NDIS people will say, well, if, if someone's being abused in, a, let's say, a group home, they'll just know what to do. They'll call the right person and get it sorted. Uh, and my first yes. response to that is, please, please, can you just do some really basic, fundamental reading about what it means to be institutionalised? And, and the challenges, you know, that a person with disability would face, you know, in terms of identifying and then being able to take the appropriate steps to stop that abuse. And so Indeed. I think this is what, what, what I call a misuse of the concept of choice and control. You know, I get told, for example, that people have um, circles of support. Well, I hope we do. But people who, in, for example, um, group homes, and boarding houses often miss out on that. And then there's all the sorts of violence that people out there, your listeners included, very often wouldn't think of as being violence. For example, the mandatory use of um, psychotropic medication, which is very, very common in boarding houses and group homes. And what does that mean? Well, it means, for one, you end up in situations where almost everybody in a group home or boarding house setting, can be on clozapine. Now, I'm not saying in cases where that's medically uh, indicated, perhaps might be an option, but when you've got a situation where everybody just stays on the medication, despite the fact that it can be quite toxic, despite its its many side effects... That can be construed as a form of violence. Well, it is. is. The CRPD is quite clear that coerced or forced um, medication uh, breaches the convention. And so, you know, these are the sorts of situations that we're seeing and and this is why we put out the the press release calling for some change in this space. I'm so glad, Stephen, that you come onto the program. We're going to have to wrap up soon. We've got a couple of minutes left. And just quickly, uh, I believe that Anne-Marie Smith died on the watch of NDIS during their watch, right? Yeah, I, I think I think that example and and there are other examples like that um, points to um, a, a very unfortunate problem and and uh, one of those problems, of course, was around a, a core issue with regard to Emory Smith and that was um, that everything defaulted to one service and indeed it seemed one worker. And yeah. my yeah. my uh, I've been told that that will change, but. What won't change is, is a more critical problem, as I see it, and that is you get very, very often you'll get people who've got involvement from NDIS, health, mental health, and other services, and yet with all these services involved, everyone doesn't seem to be doing anything at all. Apologies if the grammar doesn't sound correct because it's not meant to. And we That's had right. another case here. In, we had another case here in New South Wales where a gentleman had been discharged from long stay at a a terrible psychiatric hospital here. 
mental health at that hospital, and I'm talking about mental health professionals, social workers, psychologists, yeah, yeah. Uh, psychiatrists, they just wash their hands of supporting this Oh, family. I imagine they would. Stephen, we... He, 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 just quickly, he had NDIS, and, and they too stepped out. He ultimately died. I understand yeah. he died of starvation in his own home. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, Stephen. Can I have you back again um, in, in the next couple of weeks? Is that okay? Absolutely. That'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, and anybody that's interested in the Royal Commission, go onto the website. Um, and, you know, we'll be talking about the Royal Commission um, later on anyway as well. Stephen, thank you so much for coming onto the program, and I'm hoping that this is successful. Okay, thank Commission. you very much. Excellent. Thank Thanks you a lot. Much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, you mob. It's up to all of us to keep checking in when we're out. Checking in is the quick and easy way to stop the spread of coronavirus and keep protecting our elders, communities and each other. Before you leave home, download the Service Victoria app and keep checking in because checking in keeps us safe and open. Stay deadly, stay safe. A 3CR supporter. And it's goodbye from Marissa. Stay tuned every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. Blackfella, Whitefella coming up next. Bye. Are you the one?